that they can find stability in in these unstable days. This morning we come to this, our final message through Mark's gospel. And it is a message that offers us a great, solid rock of hope in the midst of a culture of despair. We left off last week with the seemingly hope-burying death of Jesus Christ. His first followers, the disciples, had hoped that he was God's great answer to all their greatest problems. They believed that Jesus was undefeatable. While he was alive, their hope was bright in their own surrounding culture of despair. But now, he was dead. But praise the Lord, that's not the end of the story. This morning, we will see in this sunrise angelic announcement at the empty tomb, he's risen. We'll see that those first followers found in that announcement and that reality a rock of hope that is totally unshakable. And the message for us this morning is this same angelic announcement, he is risen, stands this morning for us. Something solid under our feet to stand on. An unsinkable, unshakable rock of hope cut out of a mountain of despair, to quote Martin Luther King. We have, because of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, something solid under our feet, even if everything else in our lives gives way. In Romans 15.4, the Apostle Paul wrote that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In our passage this morning, we're going to see three ways that this passage offers us solid encouragement and hope. We're going to draw out these three hope-filled encouragements to renew our hope this morning in this culture of despair around us. But first, before we get into the text that I'm handling this morning, some of you are probably wondering, why did Simon finish reading at verse 8? There's still verses 9 to 20. And so I want to give one word on why I'm preaching up to verse 8 and not preaching the longer ending from verses 9 to 20. On another occasion, I could preach those verses. I would have no problem in doing so. But I want this morning to finish at verse 8, basically because that is where I believe Mark's gospel originally ended. And I believe this for three main reasons. Number one, many of the most important and earliest manuscripts did not include this ending. Most of your Bibles, I'm sure, will have some little note that says something like that. 
Let's just think about that for a moment. Since we don't have the original handwritten copies of the Gospels, we rely on copies that were passed down through subsequent generations. We call these copies manuscripts, and the science that studies the manuscripts is called textual criticism. We've thousands of old manuscripts dating right back to the second century, so we can get pretty close to the autographs. And when text critics compare all the thousands of manuscripts and scraps and fragments of the New Testament that are still out there, the agreement between them all, they all match up in an amazing way, it really is remarkable. That's how you get your modern-day Greek New Testament from which our English translations are derived. You put together all the manuscripts as early as you can, you compare them all, and if you've got like 95% of them that say this and only 5% say this, have this spelling of this word, you're pretty confident that the 95% of manuscripts are the, the original, if you can get back to the oldest manuscripts. So the Bible is actually the most rigorously scrutinized and attested text in the history of human literature. Most variants in the manuscripts are to do with spelling and word order, and no variant, no like various reading, impacts in any way, significantly, the doctrines and truth of the gospel. So we can be really confident that what we have in our Bibles is indeed what was originally written. It's been scrutinized inside out, And all we're left with is two passages, one in John's gospel and this one in Mark's gospel, where there's this area of uncertainty. Hmm, we're not sure if this was originally there or not. And this longer ending is one of those variant endings. The longer ending in Mark is left out of the most significant and early manuscripts. And where it is found in the early manuscripts, it's often accompanied with a little note in the margin that asks the question, We're not sure, was this original to Mark or not? Today it's the virtually unanimous verdict of text critical scholars that the authentic words of Mark end at verse eight. So you might ask, well why do they keep it in then? Because from very early on it was discovered but always often with this margin note that said we're just not sure. So those who are helping translate our Bibles today Keep it in because they feel like that reflects best the history of this text in our Bibles. It's been there for a long time, but there's often been this question, hmm. So for that reason, um, I think we're safe to stay with the eight uh, eight verses from 16, one to eight. We can be absolutely confident of those and the rest of the gospel, but not just as confident in verses nine down to 20. Second reason uh, why I'm finishing at verse 8, verses 9 to 20, they don't really read like Mark's writing. Verse 9, for example, if you look at it, now he, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. That feels like we're introducing Mary Magdalene for the first time. He's telling us something about her. But in the previous verses, we've read about Mary Magdalene three times. We've been introduced to her already. We've already seen her in this gospel. There are 18 new words in verses 9 to 20 that are not found anywhere else in Mark's gospel. So it feels a bit different when you read it to Mark's writing. Third reason then for why I'm finishing at verse eight, because this late section, it reads more like a patched together account of some information from the other gospels and the book of Acts. 
And it's really easy to see why someone would feel the need to add this ending. Look at how abrupt Mark's ending is. You get the announcement of the empty tomb, and then the women running away, and they're kind of like, ah, oh, and nothing else. No meeting of the risen Lord. Nothing else that we get in the other Gospels or in the book of Acts. So you could really understand how a later copyist would add maybe a little bit of information in the margin or just at the end, a little postscript to say, I want you to know that verses 9 to 11, he was seen by people. Verses 12 and 13, there were two on the road to Emmaus who met him. And then verses 14 to 20, kind of like the Great Commission text. We just want you to know that all that happened too. But in the end, saying all that, if verses 9 to 20 are, are original or or not, are or not, it makes no real significant difference to our understanding of this gospel at all. There's no new teaching, and everything in verses 9 to 20 is drawn from other parts of Scripture. If it is handled rightly and interpreted rightly, there's nothing problematic in it at all. <laughs> so we really don't have to stress about it, but I just wanted to be faithful to explain to you why there's a little footnote that explains the question over this longer ending and why I have confidence in the rest of the gospel and that's why I want to preach down to verse 8 and stop there. But with that all said, I wanted to deal with that right at the start because I don't think that would have been the nicest way to end a sermon on Easter Sunday morning. That said, let's now get into the text that we can be absolutely rock-solid confident about. And as I said at the beginning, I want us to see three ways this passage offers us solid encouragement and hope in our current climate of despair. First, we see this encouragement and hope through the faithful women that we meet in the passage there are two ways these women in our passage provide for us this great encouragement and hope. First, in their role as witnesses to the resurrection, and second, in their role as examples, as faithful disciples. First, let's consider their role as witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. You've probably noticed that each point in Mark's account of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, Mark wants us to know that there were a group of women there who witnessed everything with their eyes. Mark ends the account of the death of Jesus in verse 39. That's where we finished our exposition last week. But notice how in verses 40 and 41 of chapter 15, he adds this little detail of the women who witnessed Jesus' death with their own eyes. Mark gives us the personal names of these women, which is very rare in Mark. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. He wants us to know they were there and they saw his death. They were looking on when he died on the cross. Then look at where they next pop up in the narrative. Verses 42 to 46, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, takes Jesus down from the cross and lays him in his own tomb. And then look what you get in verse 47, the women again. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was led. Then look at where they pop up again. 
chapter 16, 1 to 8, gives us the account of Jesus' resurrection. And who sees the empty tomb first? The same women. Verse 1, we're introduced when the Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. Salome brought the spi- bought the spices so that they might go and anoint him. And then later on, in verses 6 and 7, the angelic announcement is made to those women. And in each of these accounts, the emphasis falls, it's striking, on what they saw. So 1540, Mark emphasizes they were looking on when Jesus died on the cross. In verse 47, they saw where he was led in the tomb. And in 16.6, the angel tells them to come and see where he was led. Mark wants us to to get it. They, They were there looking on at his death. They saw him in the tomb, and they saw the empty tomb. Now, why is their role as witnesses significant for us? Well, it is significant because it really argues for the authenticity of this historical record. It may not seem like a big deal to us in any way, but it was a big deal in the first century that Mark records the women as the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Why was it a big deal? Well, in that day, sadly, women were treated as second-class citizens on the whole. You know, there was actually a Jewish morning prayer where Jewish men would bless God saying, thank you, God, that you did not make me a heathen, a slave, or a woman. More strikingly, there was a law that stated that the witness of women in a court didn't count. Maybe they were a bit like Did you see this in the news during the week? The Northern Ireland women's football manager got into a bit of hot water. What did he say? Women are more emotional than men. That's why they often give away a second goal after a first. Maybe it was thought they're a bit too emotional and they they couldn't give a cool-headed, rational account of what they saw. But think about this. For those who would say it was the early church that made it all up, they fabricated the whole account. Why? Would you ever write into your account the women as the first witnesses? Because their testimony had no credibility in the culture. You would only write it like that if that's what actually happened. And so you get this really stirring argument that just in the witness of the women, It argues for the authenticity of this historical account. And I don't know about you, but that really helps me. But the women don't just encourage us as witnesses. They also offer us great encouragement as examples of exemplary disciples. They are the culmination of a series of faithful women who Mark identifies in this gospel who were exemplars of of what it means to be faithful to Jesus. Do you remember how we've tracked a couple of times along the way in our series and pointed out these faithful women? Chapter five, do you remember the woman with the issue of blood who just said, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be well. 
Or do you remember the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7 who said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus was so impressed by her faith. Then in chapter 12, do you remember the woman who anointed Jesus for burial? Sorry, chapter 14, the woman who anointed him for burial. It was chapter 12 where you had the poor widow with the two copper coins. She gave in everything she had, her whole life, everything she had to live on. Then the woman who anointed Jesus for burial in chapter 14, and now the culmination in these women who were told in verses 40 and 41, they followed Jesus continually, they ministered to him with other faithful women. I think it's only said of angels and the women in this gospel that people ministered to Jesus. We're told they followed him and ministered to him, served him. When the, sorry to put it like this man, but when the men had tucked tail, tailed and run, the women were still there. They stand as an example to all of us. I think the older I get, the more I realize that some of the playground rhymes that I engaged in, they were all wrong. Do you remember the, the whole, um, girls are better than boys, boys are better than girls? And then you might be, yeah, well, boys might be, or girls might be better than boys, but boys are stronger than girls, and all that sort of thing. The older I get, the more I realize that really is true, behind every good man there's a good woman. There is a strength in women, a tenacity, a stickability, and it's on display in this gospel in such a beautiful way. They stand as an example to us all, but if I can just speak a word of encouragement to you women here this morning, let the example of their devotion be an example to you. Let it stir your heart. You can be an exemplary woman of God, inspiring those around you because of your tenacity and your faithfulness and your commitment to Jesus. You could be a woman of God in this age. There's so much encouragement and hope that we see in the witness and character of these women. But that's not all. As we move to the second scene of the narrative, we find that there's also great encouragement and hope for us through seeing this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and his act of courage and love. Let's move into the next scene, verse 42. The focus shifts from the women to this individual man named Joseph of Arimathea. We're told three things about him in verse 43 that make him stand out as another of Mark's exemplary disciples. First, we're told he was a, re a respected member of the council. This must mean in its context the Sanhedrin. He was a Jewish religious leader, an honorable, reputable, and distinguished man. Second thing we're told about him, he was himself looking for the kingdom of God. This is Mark's way of telling us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. Matthew and John in their gospels tell us explicitly that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He was afraid of 
what would happen if it got out that he was a secret follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea did not consent to the council's decision to put Jesus to death. Third thing we're told about Joseph is that now that Jesus had died, he took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. It was Roman custom to leave crucified criminals on the cross for days, to stand as a kind of dystopian warning. This is what happens to criminals under Roman governance. But Joseph saw the disgrace, and he wanted to lay Jesus' body to rest properly. You have to wonder what went on in Joseph's heart that led him to take this massive risk and to go public in his love for Jesus. He'd stayed quiet in the council. Now, do you think he's seen the death of Jesus? And I wonder, is he just like, I'm done with hiding? We just don't know. But he's very similar to that woman in chapter 14 who anointed Jesus' death, Jesus in his his life for his death, for his burial. We read back there in chapter 14, Jesus said she did what she could. And here Joseph now does what he can. He asks Pilate for Jesus' body. And Pilate, we read, is surprised to hear that Jesus has already died. The death of crucifixion usually took death. And everything in the little exchange now, from verse 44 down to 46, is to help us know that Jesus was really dead, not just swooning in a state of unconsciousness where a a moment in a cool tomb could revive him. Just look at the way it's written. Verse 44, Pilate's surprised to hear that he had died. He summons the centurion, presumably the centurion who stood guard at the cross, and asks if Jesus has already died. Verse 45, he learns that he's dead and grants the corpse to Joseph. There's lots of words you could use for a dead body. Corpse really hits home. We want you to know He's really dead. Then in verse 46, Joseph brings with him a linen shroud. He takes Jesus down from the cross. Imagine the intimacy of that moment. He wraps him. He lays him in the tomb that has been cut out of the rock and rolls a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Wealthy men had tombs that had a a rolling disc-shaped stone Think sliding wardrobes. (laughs) You know, they slide on those wee wheels back and forward. Um, Wealthy men often had tombs like that, and it would fit that Joseph of Arimathea had such a tomb. Let's just step back again for a moment and just think about why the, the emphasis on Joseph of Arimathea at this moment. Well, I think again we have an encouraging example of a model disciple. We saw that encouragement through the women, but now we see in Joseph especially an encouragement to the men here. He's an encouragement to us all, but specifically to us men. All we know is that at one point, Joseph was a quiet, shy, timid follower of Jesus. But seeing now the significance of Jesus' death, Give him some newly discovered courage 
And he said, I am not going to be ashamed to own my Lord. And he stood forth as a man, a courageous man, a man of faith, a man who was ready to stand up and be counted. But notice his manliness was expressed in an incredible act of loving devotion to Jesus. That's real manliness. Men, maybe you're here this morning and your your faith is something that, that you're a bit ashamed about. You're in your shell, you're timid, and you're fearful. You can be very excited about lots of things that are nothing to do with Christianity, but when it comes to your faith, you're like Joseph of Arimathea. Fearful, timid, and quiet. Joseph stands as an example to us that we would stand up and take courage as men in our age to show love and devotion and strong commitment to Jesus. Let's lead the way and set the tone. In a way, you could say, in this text, it's like the women and the men are grappling to outdo one another in being those exemplary disciples. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Pray even now, oh Lord, give me courage in my workplace, amidst my family, with my friends. Make me one of those disciples that that takes courage and demonstrates love and commitment to Jesus in the simple ways that Christ calls us to. Well, we have encouragement and hope from the women, encouragement and hope from Joseph of Arimathea, and now in the third scene, we see encouragement and hope that comes directly from this angelic announcement. In chapter 16, verse 1, as we move into the third scene, we're told of the two Marys and Salome heading out to the tomb to go and anoint Jesus' body, typical burial custom of the time. Mark tells us in verse 2 that it was very early on the first day of the week at sunrise. That's the equivalent to our Sunday morning. As the women were making their way to the tomb, they start wondering, how are we going to roll the stone back from the mouth of the tomb? But as they arrive, to their surprise, they find the tomb open with the stone already rolled back. Now, how would you feel in that moment? Put yourself there. Would that not scare the life out of you? It's an open grave. Cemeteries are scary enough if all the graves are closed. But you imagine it's not yet fully bright because the sun's rising. It's kind of that early dawn and you arrive at a grave and it's open, but yesterday it was closed. You imagine how you'd feel. Scare the life out of the strongest and the most courageous. Well, they duck their heads in, imagine. And to their surprise, there's a man in white sitting there. And what's the first thing he says? Don't be afraid. In verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
Isn't this wonderful? He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they led him. Now go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him. Just as he told you. There's lots we could draw out from this final scene, but I want us to see the main source of encouragement and hope. It's all centered around eight words in this scene. He is risen. He has risen. Just as he told you. I want us to focus on those words because they are a fountainhead of encouragement and hope for us today. Remember how along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus repeatedly spoke to the disciples about what would happen him in Jerusalem. Listen to his words back in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him And after three days, he will rise. He was delivered up just as he told them. Mocked and flogged just as he told them. Killed just as he told them. And he rose from the dead just as he told them. And here's the encouragement. If everything happened to him just as he told them it would, including his claim to rise from the dead, now, today, we can trust him that everything else he said would happen will happen too. This includes the promise he made back in chapter 13 that one day he would come again in power and glory to fix everything that is wrong with this broken world. He would finally and fully do away with everything that wearies us. Here is our rock of stability in our culture of despair. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened just as he told them it would, then ultimately we know that God is going to put everything right one day in our broken world just as he told us. Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death itself is going to go away because Jesus has demonstrated his absolute authority over it all. His resurrection is the dawn of a new creation day. The darkness that shrouded the sky during his death was like the darkness and emptiness that was there in Genesis 1 before God said, let there be light. And now when God said, my son, rise, it was like saying again, let there be light. A new creation day had dawned. We taste it now, but oh, the fullness will come 
when Christ, just as he told us, comes again. That is our sure and certain hope. And the way the story ends, if we close at verse 8, stands to give us such an invitation to be part of this story that we are all still living in. You see, over and over again, the last part of this gospel, human weakness has been contrasted with the strength and grace of Jesus. Remember in Gethsemane, we saw the glory of Jesus as he prayed and sought the Father and the weakness of the disciples as they slept. When he was arrested, we saw the glory and strength of Jesus in his silence. And we saw the weakness of the disciples as they ran away. And it was especially emphasized in the trial of Jesus when we saw his resolve to go to the cross. And then sadly, Peter's denial when he blew it so badly and denied Jesus three times. But remember back in chapter 14, 28, Jesus told them, even though you're all going to abandon me and run, after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Even though I know the worst of you, your weakness, your failures, I'm going to go through the cross for you, through death for you, I will rise for you and I will stand on the other side of your failure and your denial as your glorious shepherd and savior and I'll still be waiting for you and you're still welcome to come. And notice, as we've already commented on going through, it would have been so easy for the disciples, especially Peter, to think, well, there's no point in me going. I blew it so badly, he'd never want me. And look at the words that Jesus puts in the angel's mouth. Tell the disciples, and Peter, I'm waiting. I'm standing, ready, as your gracious, forgiving Savior and Lord. Peter, disciples, your failures don't define you anymore. And so, the story closes with even the weakness and fear of the women as they run, astonished and fear, and they're almost afraid to say anything. But did that hold the gospel back? Well, here we are today. It clearly didn't. Because the good news resurrection announcement of Jesus is like dynamite that explodes, and it's still, the shockwaves are still going out across the world. And here's the thing. Even Human weakness cannot hinder it because Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet we're left here at the end of this gospel with the picture of Jesus waiting in Galilee, calling the disciples to come. And the question that's left at the close of the whole gospel is, will you go to him? He's there. He's standing Waiting for you, inviting you, saying your sin does not rule you out. Jesus has paid for your sin. 
He's done everything you need. And he's standing as a risen Lord today as a rock of hope and encouragement in the midst of a culture of gloom and despair. Something solid under our feet. Hope for today. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. It's incredible. It's amazing to be saved, isn't it? It's amazing to be saved. It's amazing to be united to Jesus. It's amazing to have this hope burning in our hearts today. And so he closes. Remember how the gospel started? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark leaves things open without an ending, because remember, this is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. It's the end of the beginning. And we're still in the story. We go to a risen Lord. We find strength and hope in him. As we traverse a broken world, you think of all your pain, all your brokenness. Every one of you could tell me about your own story of despair and hurt and brokenness in this world. And yet, how amazing. You have a Savior who'll never let you down, never give way under your feet, a sure and certain hope who is here for you in life and who the moment you die will be standing there to welcome you home into the fullness of life that is life. And then we will really live for the first moment. Have you taken your place in the most incredible, real story of hope in the universe? You're invited to go to him. He'll forgive your sins, just as he told you. He'll give you new life, just as he told you. He'll never let your failures define you, just as he told you. He'll come again to fix this broken world, just as he told you. You know, I read this week an interview where the American pastor Tim Keller was interviewed. He's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The doctors have told him he will die from it, almost certainly. Tim Keller was interviewed and asked about the difference Easter makes to his life now that he's living with a terminal illness. And I'll close with these words from Tim Keller. Well, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, then I guess all the bets are off. But if it actually happened, then there's all the hope in the world. I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. But now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear, any anger, any despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible, sure and certain hope we have because of Jesus. The worst that this world can throw at us ultimately is death. But even death surrenders 
to the authority of the Christ. And so in him we stand. He's our light and our strength and our song. He's the solid ground we stand on today. And thank you that nothing in heaven and earth can ever separate us from your love in Christ. And as we respond now and sing of our hope in Christ alone, and we share together as a church family in the Lord's table, united together in his death, filled with the hope of being united together with him in his resurrection life. Oh Lord, as we respond now, come fresh by the power of your spirit and stir that hope in our hearts that we could be like those men on the road to a mess with burning hearts filled with new hope because of the risen Lord Jesus. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's, who's here and they don't know Jesus and they're here, they hear the call this morning of Jesus saying, I'm waiting for you to come. Lord, may they respond and run to Jesus this morning. Lord, bless us now as we continue our worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we prepare ourselves to share with thanksgiving the Lord's table and the Lord's supper, let's first stand and sing the first two verses um, of our next hymn.